Well, there is no shortage of girl power in pop culture these days. We have Elsa, Queen of Arendelle, <laughs> who learns how to use her unusual powers for good in Disney's blockbuster Frozen. Katniss Everdeen, heroine of the Hunger Games, who dares to challenge and beat the Capitol at their own game. And most recent on the scene, Joy, the emotional alter ego of a 12-year-old girl named Riley in uh, Pixar's film Inside Out. Now, there's a reason these movies are so popular and these characters are so captivating. They're stories of empowerment, of the young, the outcast, the poor, the weak, the forgotten, the overlooked, the girl rising up, fighting back, saving the day. The message is simple and clear. You don't have to be a man to be the hero. <laughs> you don't even have to be the grown-up. Now, it's actually a good message. It happens to be true. But it's not a new message. It's as old as the Bible. It's a message that originates with God himself. The Bible is full of stories of boys and girls and young men and young women doing remarkable things for and with God. And this summer, we are looking at some of those stories, learning what we can from these young men and these young women. Last week, we began with the story of Miriam, who as a young girl rescued her brother Moses. As a mature woman, she helped lead the people out of Egypt. Well, today we're going to look at the story of another young person, another girl. Now, this girl is so small, so insignificant by human standards, we're never even told her name anywhere in the Bible. And yet, God chooses her and uses her to do something great. Now, in keeping with the theme of our series, Never Too Small, and with our faith family worship experiences this summer, we're encouraging our preachers each week to share a little bit of their own childhood or teenage years uh, and how those years shape their faith and their character. So uh, last week, Pastor Jeanette shared a picture of herself at three years old on a tricycle, so I thought I would keep that theme going, and there I am, okay? Ready to rumble, okay? That picture was taken on the parsonage, on the lawn of the parsonage of the church where my father was a pastor for the early years when I was uh, just a toddler, a little country church, upstate New York, a town called Farmer's Mills. I'll come back to my story later on. Let's now get to the story of a young girl, a proud man, and a great God. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, this story takes place during a period we call the Divided Kingdom. If you remember, after the reigns of King Saul and David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split in two, north and south. The northern kingdom was referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom known as Judah. This particular episode involves primarily the northern kingdom of Israel, but also a neighboring nation, the nation known as Aram, which you can see is just to the east there of the kingdom of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan River. Today, that region is, of course, known as Syria. Now, the story begins in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, verse 1. Now, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. 
He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So here, right at the beginning, we meet this general, this warrior named Naaman. Now, as I was preparing this message, I really wanted to tell it using flannel graphs. Because that's how I first heard the story, and I can still see those images in my mind. But they're pretty small to be using on a platform like this, so we'll go with the screens instead. But this Naaman is a strong, powerful character. He was a national hero. Think Colin Powell. Think chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's who Naaman was in the land of, of Aram. But he has a problem. He has leprosy. And that word leprosy is used in the Bible to describe all manner of skin diseases, diseases that were, of course, uncomfortable and painful. They were disfiguring, they were humiliating, and often they left people outcast from the rest of society. Now, before we kind of move on to the story, I do want to notice one, one interesting thing, a little phrase tucked in here. Verse 1 says, Because through him, that's Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now, let's remember, Aram is no friend to Israel. They weren't bitter enemies, but they were uneasy rivals, sharing a border and often skirmishes, skirmishes over those border towns. It was a pagan nation. And yet God is at work in the nation of Aram. And he's at work in the life of this Aramean general as well using Aram to give him a victory over some other nation that he was fighting at some other time. It's a subtle but very intentional reminder on the part of the author that God is the God of all nations and the God of all people. That he truly does, as the song says, have the whole world in his hands. And the writer includes that in the story because the people of Israel tended to forget that he was the God of all the nations. And sometimes we forget that too. This weekend we are celebrating our nation, its independence, its freedom, and it is worth celebrating. We, we live in a wonderful country. We are grateful for our freedom. God surely has blessed us in all kinds of ways. That is worth celebrating. But we do want to remember that God loves the other nations as much as he loves America that he is at work in those nations just as surely as he is at work here. It reminds us that God loves all people too. Even people who are far from him, people who don't know him, people who reject him, people who resist him, people who oppose him. Remember, Naaman, Naaman is a pagan. He worships other gods. He makes life difficult at times for the people of God. But God loves him. God's at work in his life. We would do well to remember that about all the people of our world, both our, our, our personal world and our larger world as well. So the story begins with this proud, strong man named Naaman. But in spite of his strength and his nobility and his achievements and his wealth, there's nothing that he or anyone else in Aram can do about his problem. He has leprosy. Let's see what happens in verse 2. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, 
If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So we meet this young girl. And again, we're not told her name. It's the only time she appears in all the Bible. We don't even know how old she is exactly. Now, in the ancient world, uh, 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 it wasn't unusual for a, a young woman of 14 or so to be married. So she's probably younger than that, but old enough to work, old enough to know what's happening around her. So let's assume she's 10 or 11 or 12 years old, probably. So she's a young girl. We're also told that she's a slave. Now, don't just skip over that. What the Bible's telling us is that this young girl had been snatched from her home. A marauding band of Aramaeans had made their way into Israel, invaded some small village, barged into a family's house, taken their daughter, and carried them off with her back to their land to be a servant. That's an awful thing. And it's still an awful thing. Slavery is still very much with us in our world today. We call it human trafficking most often. But it involves boys and girls and men and women taken against their will and forced into hard labor or worse. Some estimates say there are as many as 30 million enslaved children, men, and women in our world today. It's an awful thing in our world, and it was an awful thing then too. I don't want us to miss the circumstances in which this young girl finds herself. She's been taken from her home, her family, her village, plopped down in a foreign country to serve another master. Now, we don't know if Naaman was a kind or a cruel master, but I think we'd all agree that she has every reason to be angry, to be resentful, to be bitter, and maybe even hateful towards her captors who are enemies of her people and Naaman who is her master. But here's the remarkable thing. In spite of all of this, this young girl cares for Naaman. She sees his condition, his leprosy, and she wants him to be well. She not only cares about him, she believes God can help him. Now, this is remarkable faith. Remember, this girl is not going to Sunday school every week and hearing stories from the Bible. Her parents aren't tucking her into bed at night, praying with her about God's help and power. She's all alone in a foreign land, and yet she has the faith to believe that her God can help this man, Naaman, that he can heal him. She not only cares about him and believes God can help, she has the courage to speak up and point Naaman towards her God. If only my master would see the prophet in Israel, he could be healed. That took great courage to say that. Remember, the Arameans, they have gods of their own. So here she is, a girl in a foreign country, telling her master that her God is stronger than his gods. It was a very dangerous thing to do in a household like that. So we have this young girl showing great compassion, great courage, great faith in the face of some very difficult circumstances. How can we not be inspired by that? How can we not be challenged by that? Even though she's 10 or 11 or 12 years old, she humbles us. Do we care that much about the people we do business with every day? Do we have the faith to believe God can work miracles in our lives, in their lives? Are we brave enough to speak up about God in our places of work and school and livelihood? 
Now, none of us are in a foreign land serving as slaves, fortunately. But there are times we all find ourselves waking up in unhappy circumstances, unfortunate circumstances, maybe even unfair circumstances. Maybe, maybe you go to a job that you hate every single day. The boss is miserable. The work is tedious or exhausting. Maybe school is really difficult for you. Maybe kids are mean to you at school or in your neighborhood. Maybe your neighbors are just difficult to get along with. The dogs do their stuff all over your lawn. <laughs> Maybe someone in your family has a health crisis and you're spending more time and money in a hospital than you ever, ever imagined. Maybe you're the only Christ follower in your office or your extended family or your neighborhood and you're often misunderstood or ridiculed because of your faith. In those circumstances, it's easy to get discouraged it's easy to get resentful, easy to feel like God has forgotten, easy to get angry at people or at God. And, and this little girl had every reason to do those things. And yet, she cares for the people around her, even her captors, enemies of her people. She wants them to be well and happy. She believes God can do good things. Even though God has left her there in that foreign land, she hasn't gotten everything she wanted from God. And she has the courage to speak up, pointing people towards God, even when she doesn't know how that's going to be received. We have a lot to learn from this young girl whose name we don't even know. So let's keep going and see what God does. Next few verses, we find out that, that when, when Naaman hears what this girl has to say, he goes to his king, the king of Aram, to tell him about it. And the king says, great, I'll send you to Israel to get healed. He wants his commander well. He says, I'll even write a letter. I'll send it to the, to the, king, of, the king of Israel. And so Naaman packs himself up, and he packs up all this silver and gold. They estimate it to be about a million dollars worth of silver and gold to buy favor from the king of Israel. But when he gets to Israel, look what happens. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Now, the king of Israel was named Jehoram. And he, he doesn't know what's going on here. And he's afraid when this enemy commander shows up asking for a favor. He thinks the whole thing is a setup. That Aram is looking for an excuse to attack Israel. And when he's not able to heal this commander, that Aram's going to come and invade their land. And so he tears his robes as a sign of frustration and grief. It's the ancient equivalent of throwing your hands up and saying, You're killing me, Naaman, you're killing me. What do you want from me? Well, somehow, Elisha the prophet in Israel hears about what's happening. Now, prophets, of course, were the, the spiritual leader of the people. You might think of them as the kind of the senior pastor in the land of Israel. But the thing you want to remember about prophets in the ancient world is that they were kind of strange. <laughs> they weren't cool like senior pastors today. They, <laughs> they were strange. You know, they lived out in weird places, they dressed badly, they ate rotten food, they said strange things. They were a bit of a mystery. They were odd ducks, these prophets. 
But when he hears the king of Israel is afraid of Naaman the commander, he says, send him to me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So the king sends Naaman to Elisha's house. Naaman shows up with all his wealth to impress uh, impress Elisha, but then he gets there and an unusual thing happens. Elisha doesn't even answer the door. He sends his servant instead. Imagine Mayor Walsh showing up on your doorstep and you decide to stay in your recliner and send your kid to the door and say, hey Marty, send me an email. <laughs> this is not exactly protocol. Now it could be that the prophet didn't want to contaminate himself by dealing with a leper. I think something else is going on. I think he's sending Naaman a bit of a message. You think you can impress me with your money and power? Talk to my servant. So he sends his servant, and the servant delivers a surprising message. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. You'll be cleansed. Now you'd think this was good news, but when Naaman hears it, he's mad. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me. Naaman is not happy about this whole deal. First of all, he's not happy that Elisha sent a lowly servant out to talk to him. But he's even angry about the idea that he's got to go dunk himself in the Jordan River. Now, it helps to understand the Jordan River was not a very impressive river. I remember seeing it the first time we went to Israel and thinking to myself, this is it? The river I've heard all these stories about? We're not talking the Hudson of the Charles here. The Jordan River is, for the most part, a muddy, meandering kind of a stream. And it turns out that back in Aram, there are some really beautiful rivers. And so Naaman says, if I'm going to go dunk in a river... I'd rather go back to my own land and dump in the beautiful rivers of Aram. You can hear his pride coming through. But the bottom line is he doesn't want to dunk in any river at all. I mean, he's an officer and a gentleman. He's supposed to take off his robes, go into some muddy water, show off his leprosy to everybody around. It's humiliating and it's foolish. Why can't the prophet just come out and wave his hand or something and make him better? Naaman wants to be healed but he wants it on his own terms and in his own time. And before we're too hard on him, don't we sometimes make the same mistake? We make some request of God, someone to be healed, a new or a better job. We want guidance for some decision that we're making. We're, we want to meet someone special. And so we bring our request to God and we ask him to do something. But we have in our own minds an idea of how he's going to do it and the timetable with which he's going to deliver. And, and God certainly can. God could do it in a moment with, with a wave of his hand, with, a, with an email in our inbox. He could take care of the whole thing. But he doesn't usually, does he? Because usually there's something else going on. God is doing something in and through us and other people in this difficult season. Something good and important that we don't always understand. And turns out that's what's happening here too. So let's keep going. Naaman is angry. He doesn't like the inconvenience, the humiliation of dunking in the Jordan River, and he's not going to do it. Well, at this point, Naaman's servants get into the scene, 
And they, they try to persuade him. They say, Captain Naaman, or whatever they called him. If the prophet had asked you to do something great, bring an offering or do some noble deed, you surely would have done it. Why don't you do a simple thing like dunking in the Jordan River? Well, wisely, Naaman listens to his servants. Verse 14 tells us, So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. So here's this proud general. He walks down to the Jordan, slipping in the mud as he makes his way down, takes off his magnificent warrior's uniform, and wades into the water with his leprosy on display for everyone. Down and up, down and up the water he goes. I imagine holding his nose and squeezing his lips tight every time. And every time he comes up, he's still covered with that leprosy. And probably each time feeling more foolish and more doubtful. But the seventh time, something happens. The seventh time, the Bible says, his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The seventh time he came up, he was changed. He was healed. The leprosy was gone. His skin was as smooth as a baby's behind, as the saying goes. And that's the image I remember from my flannel graph Sunday school days. I don't know if there was that one in particular, but it was like that. I still remember it. Kidstown workers, vacation Bible school teachers, youth leaders, parents, grandparents, don't underestimate the power of the stories you tell children about God and His Word. It may seem like they're not getting it. You may wonder if they're learning anything, but they are learning. And you'd be surprised how long they can remember some of the stories and the images that you share with them from God's Word. It's powerful stuff. So Naaman comes up out of the water. He's healed. He was so amazed that, that he goes back to the prophet's house. And this time, Elisha comes out to meet him. And listen to what Naaman says. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is the climax of the story. This is what it's been about all along. This is what God's been up to the whole time, behind the scenes, through all the people and events, all the twists and turns of this story. It wasn't just about one guy getting healed. It was about a truth being revealed. And that truth is that there is no God in all the world like the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And that truth was not only for Naaman, it was for Naaman's wife and Naaman's household and Naaman's king and the whole nation of Aaron. It was also for Elisha's king, the king of Israel, and all the people of Israel. It was a lesson for everyone who would ever hear this story, even you and me, thousands of years later. There is no God in all the world like the God of the Bible. And the reason we know that lesson today is because a young girl had the faith and courage to believe that she could do something great for God. And that's the lesson we learn from Naaman's servant girl. You're never too small to do something great for God. Never too small to do something great for God. Somewhere along the way, this young girl had come to believe that she could do stuff for God. 
that she could speak for him and be used by him in other people's lives. Now, where did she learn that? She must have learned it back home from her parents and her extended family. She must have learned it back at the temple or the synagogue, the faith community that she was a part of. That's where she learned it. And that's where we all learn it. That's where I learned it as a child in my home and in my church. As I said, my father was pastor of that little country church for a few years, and it was a small church, but he and my mother were convinced, they were convicted that this was going to be a church where children mattered and were taken seriously. So here's a picture of me in my first Sunday school program, <laughs> okay? Anything to get the girl, right? <laughs> now, I don't remember that moment in particular, whether we sang or read or recited, I don't know. But I was taught from a very young age that kids can do stuff in church. And that would be the theme all through my growing up years. Even after my father was out of the ministry, we went off to another church, a church I've told you about many times before, a great church where I spent my childhood and teenage years, a church that valued kids and teenagers and believed they could do stuff. And so there would be many, many more times that I would be on the platform of a church, singing or reciting or sharing a story. And as soon as we were old enough, that church found a way to put us into service as well. Uh, one day this week, I came over here to Lexington to check on the uh, vacation Bible school that was happening. And after kind of hanging around for a while, I was making my way out, and I passed through the break room where the staff takes a break. And I bumped into three or four teenage boys wearing their blue VBS staff shirts. They were taking a break from leading games, leading recreation. But they were excited and proud to be a part of the story, a part of what's happening. And I remember that feeling when you're old enough to get out of VBS and be on staff for Vacation Bible School. It was a good feeling. But before too long, my mother, who was almost always Vacation Bible School director, recruited me to teach my own class. I had a class of sixth grade boys. And I remember how scared I was. I remember how hard I worked to make it interesting. And I remember how good it felt when those boys had fun learning the Bible. I still remember their names and faces in that classroom. In seventh grade, one of the youth leaders, a volunteer himself, a Vietnam vet, he had just come home. He was in charge of the youth meeting for the upcoming week, and he asked me if I would help him lead the lesson. It was going to be a lesson on loneliness. He suggested it might be a fun idea if we used a song from the radio to kind of start the lesson. So we chose a Simon and Garfunkel tune, I Am a Rock, I Am an Island. At the beginning of the youth group time, we played the 45 of that song. We talked about what the song was about. We talked about loneliness. And then we opened the Bible and learned about God's love. And I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. And I thought telling people about God's love was about the best thing you could do in life. Our church had Sunday evening services in those days, the old-fashioned kind, where people came back for a second show in the evening. Another Bible lesson, more singing, more worship. Every week, the youth choir would be on the platform leading the congregation in worship. Every week. And we weren't there because we had to be or because our parents made us. We were there because we wanted to be, because we were part of what God was doing there. When I turned 16, the church invited me to serve on the Christian Education Committee of the church, overseeing all the ministries of the church. They actually asked my opinion. They, they listened to my ideas. I had no idea that 40-some years later, I'd still be sitting in those meetings, <laughs> but still, still enjoying them. By the end of high school, 
I knew what my life was going to be all about. This is a picture from my high school yearbook. My parents made me get a haircut before the photo, so. <laughs> my friends and classmates were quoting John Lennon and Jerry Rubin and JFK. I chose some words from the Apostle Paul. It is my eager expectation and hope that I would have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ would be exalted in my body, for to me to live is Christ. I wanted to do great things for God because my family and my church had told me that I could and had already given me chances to do that. Kids, children, teenagers, young men, young women, you don't have to wait for someday to do something great for God. You can do something great right now. The world needs you to do something great. Your neighborhood, your family, your team, your school, they need you to be God's person where you are. Parents, faith parents, church, Let's create the kind of environment here that gives our kids a vision for the kinds of lives they can lead, the kinds of impact they can have. Now, I know we're doing that already. We send kids all over the world to do mission work, work for the kingdom. We, we have them help us lead us in worship. They volunteer in Kidstown. They, they serve in the cafe. They, they do all kinds of things. And let's keep it up and let's get better at it for their sake, for our sake, and for the sake of the world. You're never too small to do something great for God. But you know, this story isn't just about young people doing great things for God. This story teaches us that anybody in any circumstance can be used of God to do a great thing. Remember, this girl wasn't just young. She was a slave. She was far from home. She was alone. She had no legal status, no social status whatsoever. Her circumstances were unhappy, unfair, unfortunate. And yet, God uses her in a remarkable way. In fact, that's happening all through the story. That's the subtext of this whole story, is that God uses the young, the weak, the powerless, the lowly, the outsiders, to do great things. The powerful, mighty general doesn't know what to do about his disease. The young servant girl knows what to do. The king of Israel is terrified of this commander. The weird prophet says, send him to me. The rich guy shows up at the door showing off his wealth and his power. The prophet sends his servant to answer the door. Go dunk in the river. The general's not going to take that advice. He doesn't want to listen. It's the servants who come to the rescue and talk sense into their master. And in the end, it's not the beautiful rivers of Aram that heal Naaman. It's the muddy river Jordan. You see, that's what this whole story is about. It's meant to teach us that God loves to use the small, the weak, the powerless, the outcast, the lowly, the young, the outsider to accomplish great things. I was talking to a Grace Chapel guy the other day. Um, he volunteers with our Shine ministry, so he has a buddy uh, with special needs that he spends Sunday mornings with here at Grace. Now, this friend of mine is retired Air Force, not exactly a general, but he was up there. He's a tough guy, successful, capable, wise guy, the whole deal. When he talks about his buddy, he chokes up every time. 
with the impact that this differently abled young man has had on his life. You see, God loves to do that sort of thing. We read about it earlier. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. You may find yourself in some unhappy, unfortunate, unfair circumstances these days. You may wish you had more time, energy, money, talent, power, education. You may, you may feel like you have nothing to offer God. But the lesson of Naaman and the servant girl is that you're never too small. You're never too weak. You're never too young. You're never too old. You're never too different. You're never too far. You're never too anything to do something great for God. So don't waste any more time wishing you were older or younger or smarter or stronger or somewhere else, or someone else, or doing something else. Be who you are, where you are, believing God put you there for a reason, so that you might care for the people around you. You might invite God to do a great thing and point people towards the God who loves them and wants to do a good thing in their lives. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this humble and yet vivid and remarkable story. We thank you above all for the kind of God that you are, for the remarkable ways you work in the world. A God so great and powerful, and yet you use a young girl, you use people like us to make a difference in the lives of people around us, to make this world a little bit more like the world you want it to be. So bless us as we do that, Lord. Inspire us, challenge us, fill us with your spirit. As we and the younger and older people around us go out into the world each day to be your servants for Jesus' sake. Amen.